The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. These days, everything seems to carry a terrible symbolic weight of potential catastrophic absence. Swimming at Nielsen Park in Sydney Harbour, an ancient river valley filled by melting Ice Age waters that stabilised 7,000 years ago, I found myself wondering how high the water will rise again when the ice caps melt. Every bird I see these days, every bee, my children's godmother R says, I wonder if it's the last. Are wombats endangered? Are echidnas? My son asks, as we drive through the city's urban fringes. And yet within the span of one's own experience, it's hard to measure causes and effects, let alone grasp quite how quickly things are turning. As the world becomes more unstable in the grip of vast and all-pervasive change, it's difficult to discern exact chronologies, relationships and meaning. In this unfolding context, even small things take on terrifying and uncertain connotations. It is as if I found myself thinking, as I scoured the water for fish that day, we're entering a new era of signs and wonders. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Delia Falconer's first novel, The Service of Clouds, was shortlisted for major literary awards, including the Miles Franklin and the New South Wales and Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Her second novel, The Lost Thoughts of Soldiers, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Her most recent book, Sydney, is a personal history of her hometown. Today I'm talking with Delia Falconer about her new book, Signs and Wonders, Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss. Delia, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. We're used to measuring epochs of geological time in the billions of years, but you already used the term Anthropocene to describe an epoch that we can barely measure in the tens of thousands of years. Why are we already using this term Anthropocene? Well, Anthropocene is a term that was floating around um, since the mid-1980s, but it was popularised by a climate scientist called Paul Crutzen around 2000. The idea of the Anthropocene is that we uh, have entered a new geological era in which human activity is moving the Earth out of the lovely stable patterns of the Holocene that we've been enjoying for about 12,000 years that are quite predictable. And that as we heat the atmosphere, mostly through, through fossil fuels, that the climate is starting to behave unpredictably. It's not an uncontroversial term because um, some people dislike it because it perhaps suggests that all humans are as uh, equally responsible for, for heating the atmosphere, but it's a hand term because it really captures this sense that we have um, we're altering continuing to alter our our climate um, and our world in ways that make it increasingly precarious the other term that's very handy is the great acceleration so i think you kind of need to have those two terms um, hand in hand with each other so while the Anthropocene um, has a certain sort of certainty to it, even though we don't quite know where to plant what's called the, the golden spike, we don't quite know where to, to 
begin this is the beginning of agriculture is at the beginning of, of um, nuclear weapons is at the beginning of steam power electric electrical power um, it, it has a, a calmer sort of sense about it than the great acceleration which is um, um, I think of it in terms of this acceleration and this idea of things starting to wobble and go off scale and again become very precarious in Signs and Wonders, you've gathered together a collection of observations, of stories and essays on signs and wonders in the world around us, some beautiful, others tragic, or perhaps tragedies in the making. Why these particular signs and wonders and what exactly makes them signs and wonders in your eyes? The term and the title came to me about um, five years ago when I was, I'm a great walker, I was walking around the city and what I usually do is, is you know, I'm, I'm a nature lover so I'm kind of looking for various things for familiar birds, for fish and um, so forth. And I, I was uh, down in Woolloomooloo Bay and I was looking in the water for fish and that day I couldn't see any. And instead of feeling as if um, this was just a, a one-off thing. Um, oh, yeah, it's possibly seasonal. I'll just, um, you know, next time I come walking, I'll, I'll see something. I suddenly had this thought of, you know, what if, the, what if there are actually no fish to see? You know, what if I'm seeing a, a great reduction in fish in the harbour? And so then, then I realised that that was quite a familiar feeling. Um, it was a feeling that I'd been having more and more and a feeling I think other people had been having more and more when I was in conversation with them was this sense that because of our awareness of what we've been doing to the planet and the news that seems to sort of bombard us almost every day of huge changes like the Gulf Stream changing um, and uh, and we know that the, the temperature of the earth has moved up about one degree um, over the last century. Uh, it's hard to know what, when you're looking at something, whether you are looking at a sign of catastrophe, of damage, or whether you're looking at something that, that is a wonder. And so I, I was really fascinated by this feeling of everything needing perhaps anxious interpretation. If you look at Twitter or you look at Facebook, you are bombarded every day by all these extraordinary details, you know, mammoths appearing and, and prehistoric animals appearing out of the permafrost that's melting in the in the Arctic, pockets of methane in the in the Arctic popping like bottles of champagne, almost fictional sort of details that. Um, and so, again, there's this sense that when you look at a tiny detail, you don't know whether it's tied to these um, these quite extraordinary events or whether it is uh, just itself. And so that was the feeling that I wanted to explore, uh, you know, as an ordinary person, as as a, as a mother, as a, as a writer, as someone who, you know, spends probably far too much time walking around the, the parks and, and um, landscape of the of the inner east in Sydney, uh, to really sort of try and bring that, that sense home and to think about what it means to be um, in this moment uh, where we're, we have an awareness of what's going on. Sometimes it's quite beautiful, um, but we, but it's, it's hard to know quite how to interpret it. Many of these signs and wonders are, are very small, things like um, uh, spotting a seal in Sydney Harbour or the contents of a whale's belly, which reveals enormous quantities of plastic. Are you asking the reader to attach meaning to these everyday observations, these walks in the park, if you like? 
I think most readers are probably doing that already. You can stand in the school playground on a beautiful, warm autumn day, and, and those days have been becoming sort of more unseasonably warmer, I think. And people are already having those discussions. They're already saying, oh, this is beautiful. But the thing that I'm interested by is that some of the nature writing that is around at the moment that suggests that the way that we can save the world is to just, just feel wonder. But I think that these wonders are also warning signs and that we want to be a little bit cautious about um, being led down the track of, of wonder. The way that we receive information these days is that, you know, you open your phone and there's, um, you know, there's a picture of a tardigrade, there's um, uh, a glockenspiel playing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, parch marks um, being revealed by the droughts in the Northern Hemisphere summer that are revealing the old shapes of Neolithic villages. It's so easy to be distracted moving on from one wonder to the next to the next that my purpose in the book was to try and look across the, the fields that I'm familiar with, which is writing and ordinary life, but also across science, across some of the, the bigger theories that are being written about living in this moment, and to try and just get a bigger picture um, of what's going on, which I think is, is increasingly hard in the way that information comes at us, flies at us in bright, bright splinters, as the writer David Shields says about reality, and to try and find a, a bigger story for what we're seeing. As I read this book, I, I wondered whether we were approaching or whether you were talking about a kind of new philosophy of existence, a, almost a new kind of consciousness. Is that something you were thinking about or working towards? Part of my life is, is spent in writing books and reading books and I think that those changes have already been afoot for, for some time. So if you look at contemporary novels, there's been much more of a move to think about, can we write books that aren't just centred on human beings? Can we incorporate other living beings into the stories that we're writing? I think there's much more of a sense of bigger time frames. So one of the ways that people have been speaking and writing about this moment is to say that really we need to think bigger than the Holocene era or our human time. And we really need to start to understand the world through geological mindfulness. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of interesting writing around that I've, I've tried to gesture towards in the, in the book, always sort of in, in my case, trying to bring these ideas home into, um, you know, into writing about attempt to understand the world in much bigger terms than our than our own terms is is crucial and to understand that that we live in very unstable times I, th I think that is very much been happening for the last 10 to 15 years in a lot of writing and film reading this book and uh, witnessing the the content and the style led me to the genre label creative non-fiction what is creative non-fiction but more importantly what or where can creative nonfiction take us that ordinary nonfiction can't? And what role does it or should it play in our lives as consumers of information? Um, well, that's a huge question. I actually teach creative nonfiction at university, but it's a term that is very handy for talking about uh, nonfiction that is grounded in the personal, that sometimes breaks some of the convention of, of straight factual nonfiction. I do enjoy breaking up essay form a little bit. So one of my essays uh, in this book is um, 
I've alternated taking my children to Parliament House in Canberra and looking for this um, carboniferous fossil. If you take your children to Canberra, you can't kind of can't escape this. And you're sent by the security people to go and, and look for, the, for Sean the Prawn in the Parliament House foyer. Um, turns out that Sean the Prawn is actually a piece of coral, but that's, uh, that, that's something I, I write about in the essay as well. But around that story of looking at this, I have placed fragments in the history of our relationship with coal in Australia, up to, of course, the point where we've had a piece of coal brandished in our parliament floor to try and get a sense of how the decisions that we're making about coal have these huge ramifications in time, but also how this thing that we take for granted that is part of producing electricity that we export with the second biggest exporter of coal in the world has this astonishing history, which I've tried to show in its uncanny and strange, um, wondrous sort of history. So I guess that's creative nonfiction. In my own mind, I think of it as a, as a personal essay. That very section you were talking about, Sean the Prawn, also raises this issue about the, well, the death of the paragraph or the paragraph being a victim of our changing times, <laughs> along with the double line break. <laughs> Have they really changed the way we think about the world, the way we use these literary devices? It's interesting. That was the essay that I had the most fun with, where I decided to kind of push the boat out the most. And it's uh, had some of the most, um, most uptake and people have been really interested in that one. I live in prose, I, or I live in, in reading books very much. And so I wanted to really give that sense that the, the sort of changes, the, the instability that's going on around us can be felt in the animals that we see or don't see in the world around us, but it can also register in the tiniest things. I just became very fascinated by the way that um, a number of books I was reading, and particularly uh, quite a lot of creative nonfiction, tends to have done away with paragraphs as I once knew them, which, you know, would start with a little left indent uh, and then run on to the next without a space between them. So we were all familiar with that sort of pattern from reading, you know, anything from George Eliot to Kim Scott's novels. Um, but uh, a lot of writers are now lining their prose up against each side of the page and into these little text, these floating little text bricks, little text blocks, and then there'll be a space. And so I was just fascinated with the way that writing looks on the page it reminded me of other things. It reminded me of those photographs that you see in upmarket magazines of a single strawberry from a market or a single little pile of spice. But it also reminded me of the way that we often see the world these days, um, even these huge, potentially catastrophic changes going on around us. Um, and I started to wonder if this sense of atomization you know, was also being reflected in our writing. So I was having a bit of fun with that one, but I also started to wonder if those little lonely paragraphs sort of floating one after the other were almost um, like little intimations of what one scientist has, has described as the age of loneliness. There's very, very many terms for the changes going on around us. And um, E.O. Wilson coined this sense of the Eremocene, the age of loneliness, um, which again is probably the other term that frightens me more, more than the Anthropocene, and this idea that we'd be left to our own devices as, as one of the last sort of creatures standing. And I started to wonder if these little lonely paragraphs were kind of monuments to our, you know, lonely existence and our way of seeing the world in these tiny little bright splinters or fragments. As a final question, what do you want the reader to take from this book? 
one of the things that's very difficult in this moment is to have a language for the feelings that it produces in us. And yet there's been a lot of work going on by a lot of writers and a lot of thinkers to try and understand the science, but also to understand the, the emotional dimensions of what's, what's going on. So I suppose my book is a personal exploration. It's an attempt to put together some of the bigger picture to try to put some precise language onto something that is very frightening, as I say, sometimes very beautiful and very slippery. I hope that readers will respond to that. But, you know, I wanted to go on that journey for myself too, as someone who has young children and wants to do something to respond to this, to this moment, other than just proceed with life as normal or, or to go into a panic. Uh, putting things into words is what I do, and um, hopefully that's that's helpful in some way as well. As you said, giving us the language to talk about these things, and it's certainly a, a most fascinating book. So, thank Delia, you. I want to thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks very much, Greg. I've been talking with Delia Falconer about her new book, Signs and Wonders, Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.